Welcome to Get Your Rocks Off with Mick Wall, the world's leading rock and metal writer. Each week, he'll unpack stories, stories that you won't find in print. So pour yourself a Jack and Coke and get ready to get your rocks off. This episode is brought to you by the Get Your Store. For all of your Get Your Rocks Off merch, including t-shirts, face masks, and yep, Hotel Tropicana coffee mugs, head over to getyourstore.com. Hello and welcome to another technically inefficient episode of Get Your Rocks Off. Get Your Rocks Off. Are you hearing this through both channels? <laughs> Whoever it was who wrote in and complained about the channels. Here's the deal, okay, is yeah. they go, look, if you just, why don't you just pan and this and that? Yeah. Why don't you? Gu- guys, you I have a laptop. It. You pan it. Put, it, it. put it into, what is it, Garage <coughs> Band or whatever it is? Mm. Put it into that. Do it yourself. Yeah. Not here to baby you. Exactly. I mean, I don't even know what you're suggesting happens, but all I'm saying is, is listen, I have a laptop, a little black box and yeah. two microphones. I plug them in and I go. And that's, that's how it goes. That's the level. The engineers, all the guys behind the screens, they're <laughs> doing the other stuff. The team. Yeah. The, t- the production the team. team. Production team. Alan Parsons is up there. And Lang. Lang. He's in periodically. Doesn't work as hard as he used to. Well, well, yes, but an hour of Mutt Langer is good. It's like a, yeah, a yeah. month of of yeah. of. Um... Oh, Chris Sangarini. <laughs> oh, I would never. Have <laughs> well, you can't say that. Oh no, the late that's Chris Sangarini. Very... No, he did some good albums, Chris Sangarini. He did, did he? Did them fast though. Of course he did. Did them fast. No messing. Yeah. Anyway, so. Um, well, yeah. So today, today. we're going to discuss what for me is, I think, the biggest British band of the 80s. And also, I'm going to say, one of the very, very best. Are you? Def Leppard. Def Leppard. Yeah. I always thought it's like that is done because of Led Zeppelin, isn't it? That's, oh, yeah, completely, it yeah, yeah. follows the same metre. And well, the name came from the singer Joe Elliott when he was at school. You know, at school you have your exercise Yeah, book. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and g- girls would be practicing their signature or boys' I name. Joe. I love Joe. Yeah. yeah, and um and he'd be writing you know band names. Yeah. and of course Led Zeppelin became yeah. Def Leppard, but D E F. Yeah, because Led Zeppelin should have been if they were going to be uh, uh, dictionary wise should have been L E A D. Yeah, but, but people would have thought it was called Lead Zeppelin. Exactly. Yeah, and if he'd kept it as D-E-A-F, they'd have thought he meant deaf. Yeah, exactly. When in fact yeah. he meant deaf. Yeah, he meant deaf, left, like, and deaf becomes, I mean, he's like had this vision. Vision. Because the word deaf, deaf. D-E-F, yeah. by the late 80s becomes this, you know, byword for cool. Yeah, deaf you know, jam. Deaf jam, man, yeah. Deaf old ladies. D- deaf American. Deaf American. Yeah. Definitely. Cru- Crusher went around calling himself Crush Deaf. <laughs> Yes, I do remember that. It didn't catch on, weirdly. No, no, I don't think it did. (laughs) It did in his mind. Oh, well, that's different. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of things catch on in your mind, don't they? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, Def Leppard, and um, 
I, I just think I just feel it's really important to say straight off the bat what a fucking talented, creative, I think innovative, extraordinary band they were in the eighties. They were, they were. Yeah. And I and I, I say that because I, I I feel even then they were being overlooked because what they did was on such a high level, with Mutt Langer of course, what they did with Mutt was on such a high level that um it was just easier to go, oh, I really love the new Iron Maiden album around the time, say, of Pyromania or um, whatever it might be. And then by the time of Hysteria, you know, within a... I think the same month Hysteria is released, Appetite for Destruction is released. And although that makes no impact whatsoever to begin with, um, it is the antithesis of Hysteria, which is this incredibly manicured... Yeah. recorded note by note essentially note by note but really thought through in that way that only i mean uh, mutt langer to me is in a historical line of you know phil Spector when he was making river deep mountain high and he's got four bass players and 12 violinists and i think he used to have like six or seven guitarists you know um Brian Wilson, when he was making those incredible Beach Boys albums, Pet Sounds and all those things, just just not just catchy pop songs, but production-wise, particularly in the days when you think he's well, only people got... Could, people go on about that, but it's just annoying, isn't it? And they do whoop, 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 the No, 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 no. I don't want to... stop you right there. I, I'll tell you the lineage of, uh, of Mutt Lang... I'll tell you this for nothing. Oh, here we go. Oh, you tell me this for nothing. That's good. Usually, uh, you charge no. I, I would also draw an analogy with, um, or or a line through, uh, Roy Thomas Baker and Queen. Definitely, because not in the terms that they didn't sound remotely the same, but that notion of production being a part yeah. of the creative process. Yeah. So it's not just here are the songs we've written. The production's here to make it sound good. It's here are the songs we've written and they've been taken to this new height because sonically the producer... And it's, you know, Floyd did the same thing as well. And it's, you know, it's this... While Floyd and Queen happened uh, at the height of vinyl when people went out and had their first stereos, you know, home stereos came in and you had separates instead of a you know, an old school box that had a, you know, the amplifier built in. All of a sudden, you'd buy an amplifier by oh, Technics yeah. oh, and, yeah. a, and a, a yeah. deck by yeah. someone else, yeah. you know, yeah. and stack it all together and have the right... And you'd have a special room to put it in. And then Leopard come along at the same time as CD, which is a new carrier. And all of a sudden, you get this pristine sound quality and hysteria comes to represent that, you know, almost technical perfection. Of sound. There's definitely a confluence, as Mm. they say there. But, you know, all the bands were moving into CD, weren't they? It was only really Leopard and Mutt Lang that turned it into an art form in itself. Yeah, you kind of do, but you get those, you know, like an old, old friend of mine, a school friend, his dad used to work in it, or I think he owned a a hi-fi shop, you know. And there would be certain records that were always used to demonstrate. Oh, yeah. And 
Dark Side of the Moon Always. was one of those because it had the stereo effect, you know. Well, it was it was and made to be listened to, made to, be listened to. on a stereo. Uh, another one was Love Over Gold by Dire Straits, which is another sort of really produced album with yeah. the piano and the yeah. guitar and all of that. Well, there was, was a, a real... You're absolutely right. There was so a it's real... Not that they, yeah, they weren't the only people doing that. It's just that certain records come to represent that particular uh, sound. With, with Mutt Lang, though, I think... Um, what separates him from those people. And I would also, just to add to that, I would say George Martin with the Beatles. No, once, I don't agree Once with that. they stopped I don't touring. Agree. I won't have that. Once they stopped touring. <laughs> oh, did they stop touring? Um, they would bring sim, him songs that he was able to build into cathedrals in terms of production. Um, so it became, that was the beginning, I think, and with the Beach Boys and Phil Spector, I think that was the beginning of saying uh, a recording studio isn't just where you record the singer or the band. Uh, that's just the, the, the starting the point. That's yeah. the beginning. Now the producer mm. builds it and builds it and turns it into something that there's no way a group mm. could just walk in and, and then, do that. You're, you're right about the studio. The studio becomes fetishised by musicians. You know, I'm in the studio. Yeah. And they begin spending extraordinary amounts of yeah. time in well, there. Well, I mean, and money. You know, you know, was an album any good unless it had taken six or seven months to record? And, and do you know, that notion still persists. A few years ago, three, four years ago, the Rolling Stones put out a, a blues album. No original songs, just them covering blues numbers. And the, the, the hype around it, the, the, the PR, was they did it in three days, right? Right, yeah. And I did a piece for radio about it, and the guy said to me, but can it, you know, if it only took them three days, can it be any good? Can it really be any good, yeah. And I, and I said, no, hang on, hang on. 50 years and three days. That's how long it took them to make that record. And don't forget, they started as a blues band. Their first album probably took an afternoon. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But the world we're talking about, when, when Def Leppard in the 80s come along, it does matter. But here's the difference I was going to say to you for me is um, Queen, Beatles, who else did Pink Floyd? They were making records to sound good on a stereo to, to, that came could only have come from the studio. But they did it in a way, I think, that you really felt the benefit as a listener. You kind of understood this was next-level stuff. I remember listening to Dark Side of the Moon on a, a magnificent... Oh, yes, because I remember you bought Dark Side of the Moon the day it came out, didn't you? You're the only person who did that, you said, <laughs> on a previous podcast. Don't remind me of what I may have yeah. said in the actual Yeah, you, yeah, you did. You said the day it came out, the day Dark Side of the Moon came out. Darling, you, I say a lot of things. You bought it, at, you were at the record shop. Yes. And you bought it that yes, day. I, yes. And the rest of the world took another six or seven months oh, yes. before they even began purchasing. Pink Who. Dark Side I remember, of the I remember Moon. people saying, Pink Who. Pink, you, and you go, you've got to listen to this. <laughs> it's called Dark Side of the Moon. You've got to listen to this. Here's my point, is that when Hysteria was released in 87, which to me was the apotheosis of yeah. Lang. Did Lemon. you buy that on the day it came out? I didn't have to, darling. No, because you've been I, in the studio. I was in the studio, I was in the studio with while they the recorded music. it. I had my own personal cassette. Are you on it? Are you on it? Yes, I'm on it. Yeah, yeah. you must but be. But I, I had like, my name taken off. It been like off. a bit of a background noise. Like you walked into the control room one day and Mutt, you know, while Mutt had record pressed down. I, I walked in the studio and I went, ooh, ooh, 
I might yeah. went, do that again. Yeah. Went, ooh, ooh. He went, hold it, hold it. Ooh, ooh. And then by the time he had done his thing, it was like, it was like an angel of... It was like, hysteria. Yeah. When near. <laughs> that was exactly... Ooh, ooh. Yeah. Hysteria when mm, you're near. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. If you listen carefully. It's there. On a proper stereo. It's not there, but it is there. There was no way anybody was coming to listen to a Def Leppard album in those days thinking this will be a sensual audio extravaganza. It was, have they got any Are you rock about songs? before Pyromania? Say what? Are you talking about before Pyromania? No, no, I'm, I'm talking about hysteria. Hysteria. When you're near. So, so um, no, no, to, to me, hysteria is the, is the absolute highest level they got or anybody could have got in those days. But no one appreciated it. I mean, even ten years later, I remember. Well, doing is this a, another one of your things? You're going to say, "Oh, no one, no one bought it." Till I said, "I it didn't say they didn't buy it. I said they didn't appreciate. Oh, they didn't appreciate it in the way you thought it should be appreciated, and in the way I wrote about it at the time." <laughs> no, I'll give you a good example. Okay, go on, then, for go on, years then. and years, you, you're trying to say that hysteria came out, and no one said this is any good. No, lots of people said it was good. No one said this is. This is genius level production. This is next level. I thought that's creation. all anyone talked about. No, absolutely. And here's what people talked about: was it's not as good as Pyromania, and that persisted. That conversation persisted for twenty years. I did a, a piece for one of those Q specials, you know, on the greatest whatever the fuck it was, and um, Blakey, you know, Blakey. I don't what from on the buses. <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, he goes, so you, he goes, you could do a Def Leppard album. I went, yeah, absolutely. It's about time someone said that. He said, oh, no. He said, no, Pyromania. That's the, he goes, at the end of the day, that's the yeah, one we all agree on, not, isn't it? No, I don't, I don't think. I, Everybody used to say that to me. They used to say, maybe, yeah. that's the rock album. Hysteria is like not as. Yeah, but that's just that pose, isn't it? That's that pose amongst journalists where they always have to go, oh, you know, the, oh, really? Well, yes. No, no, there is Actually, that. But I it's don't... not Dark Side of the Moon, it's Animals. Animals is better. Animals is the one. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. Honestly, John, so you're just, right uh, about that. But I, ne- I never met anybody would stick up for hysteria over pyromania. So you weren't, you, you didn't spend a year, the year it came out sitting opposite Alison Joy in the Kerrang office. No, because I was too went, busy on the road it, with Def Leppard. Who went on and on and on about it every day. Yeah, but because she fancied the band, not because she was talking about <laughs> levels of that, production it, genius. It was, there was, I, honestly, my memory of it is completely different. Because Lang, Lang, Lang had a cult about him by that point. By the time Hysteria comes out, I mean, paint the picture. It's this, but the story of that record is just so insane. You, if you wrote it down as a novel, people would go, you know, don't bother. This is too nuts. You know, they start off recording with Jim Steinman because uh, Mutt isn't available. That goes completely wrong. Then Rick Allen has his accident. Do you know how much money it costs them to sack Jim Stone? I don't. I would imagine it's quite... Like, I don't think Jim gets out of bed for... Take a guess. Yeah. Don't forget, it's... What's it, 85? Yeah. 86? How much? Just to go, get the fuck out. This is not working. I mean, what, a million? Peter Mensch said... Manager of Def Leppard. Co-manager. Ma- co-manager, wise head... Yeah. 
A man killer. who does not does killer men. Absolutely. The killer. Um, I used to be terrified of it. Yeah. Um, still I am. Uh, <laughs> Dave Dixon used to call him Peter Ubermen. Yeah. Me? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a whole uh, episode. Just a little Nietzschean, yeah. sort of Nietzschean joke he used to get in Kerrang. He, he he said, um, it costs so much money to fire Steinman that they knew they would have to sell at least two million albums just to recoup. Just to recoup what they paid Jim. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I suppose if you think about it, Steinman's business advisors would have been saying, it's not just his time or da-da-da. This record's going to sell and he should have got a percentage. Yeah, so if yeah. he's not going to get any of yeah. that, you need to... And also Steinman, Steinman didn't really hawk himself out as a producer. So I presume they must have sought him out. They must have, someone must have gone to Steinman and asked if he wanted to do it. Because Jim was essentially a writer. You know, he was essentially it, Joe, a writer. Joe said to me, he goes, I'd never even heard of Steinman as a yeah, producer. producer. Yeah, it was, it was a weird produce, thing. He didn't produce Bat Out He didn't even hell. produce Todd Bat Rundgren Out of Hell. Produced. Exactly, yeah. It would have they made more sense Todd to get... Rundgren. Exactly, they got Todd Rundgren. It, it, that Do makes you know sense. What? That would have made sense, because yeah. Todd Rundgren, all about the vocal harmonies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. about and, the layers. And also, Rundgren, you know, if you listen to Bat Out of Hell, though there's a sort of tremendous tongue-in-cheek element to Bat Out of Hell, he gets rock, you know, how heavy rock music should sound. He does, but I don't think um, in a Def Leppard set. In a way, Steinman would have been better off producing Iron Maiden or yeah, something. Yeah, something more that he could epic. have. Well, I mean, he Steinman eventually does. Uh, who was it who did this? Corrosion Sisters of Mercy. What are they called? Sisters of Mercy. Yeah, something? yeah. yeah. That kind of industrial gothic. You know, he now and he now and now Sorry. sing this <laughs> corrosion to me. And it's got the big. So is this a Sisters of Mercy song? It, Are you having it, a stroke? Was Sisters of Mercy. Was that what they were I called? I fucking know. This think, corrosion. Do you think I fucking listened to the Sisters of Mercy? Well, no, it's because Jim did it, so I listened to it, and it was cool. It was kind of cool. But it, but you can, you can kind You're of understand. You're just a Jim Steinman fucking... Guy, I'm trying to take that. You're, you're right. He's what Jim's got is that gothic edge that maybe Def Leppard don't have. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you can find in other aspects of heavy metal. Although I think Steinman and Mutt Langer, not not at the mixing desk perhaps, but in so many other ways, are similar. You know, I'm thinking of that story Meatloaf told, where the first time him and Jim went into a room, just a piano and meat singing, and Jim came in wearing gloves. Yes. And then he took the gloves off, and underneath were more, more gloves. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And then he yeah. started playing you, in the see, gloves. You see, this is the thing. It's like, you know, uh, Steinman is an eccentric, a complete eccentric. And I, again, you don't see that marrying with Leopard, who are from Sheffield, who are, you know, very kind of down-to-earth guys, essentially. Whereas what I'm going to ask you now is, you know, Langer, along with this uh, production guru genius songwriting genius that he brings is mysterious in a slightly different way so my question to you is what is mutt langer like because i i if you said to me what does he even set what does his voice sound like i couldn't tell you well he's from south africa uh but he hasn't lived there obviously for decades so there's a it's a bit like talking to kevin shirley another producer born in south africa but who's spent decades in america and other places so there's a slight South African accent, but it's not that very broad yeah. South... You, you wouldn't mean yeah. to go, oh, he's South African. Yeah. You're kind of going, what is that? Um, 
because there's a bit of American in there, you know. Um, but what's he like? I mean, I, I, I met him very briefly over there and he was just dead normal. Yeah. He, he wasn't like yeah. Steinman. Nothing like Steinman. You know, like yeah. you, you met yeah. Steinman about, yeah. about the same time yeah. and, and you and told that story. Yeah. He ordered everything on the menu. It's an experience. And ate it with yeah. his hand. Yeah. It's well, that was never going to be yeah. Mutt Lang. Yeah. And Mutt Lang didn't um, want to be interviewed, didn't want to be photographed. And yeah, that's right. People didn't even really know what he looked like for a long time. No, I mean, and to be honest, I wouldn't know what he looks like now. My my yeah. memory no, of not, him is from just, those days. Just the hair. I mean, I remember his hair. He had kind of blonde, shaggy hair, but that's but beyond blonde, that. shaggy hair, but in that sort of semi mullet mm. style yeah. of the eighties. Yeah. So and he'd been married, and he'd been married to Olga Lange, who'd then gone off and uh, managed our old chum Marino. Did she? Yeah, I never knew that. So or did, ma- does yeah, that mean she managed, managed Lisa Dominic? Maybe she did. How quickly maybe we get did. to Lisa Dominic? We did, yeah, maybe. I, I just remembered that. She was saying, I was like, Olga Langer, they used his, to go on and on about that. His second wife was Stevie Langer, okay. who was an incredible singer. Oh, and I remember her. Yeah, she was a fantastic singer, yeah. She was. Well, that's her now. <laughs> um, incredible singer to the point where what I heard is that Mutt would bring Stevie in to do guide vocals for Joe. Yeah, yeah. Now, whether that was Hysteria or Pyromania or maybe even the album before, which Mutt also Mm. produced, High and Dry, I don't know the actuality. But apparently Stevie could, you know, just wonderful, one of those natural singers is coming in. Oh, we need that a tone higher, semi-tone higher, Mm. no, this, that, and she'd just do it. And then uh, Joe was, you know, he had uh, something to work with. Yeah. Um, because Joe is a great rock singer, but Mutt Lang wants so many Yeah, he wants layer levels. after layer and harmony after harmony. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're right. So Steinman turns into a dreadful waste of time and money. Right, yeah. So by the time he, by the time Steinman's sacked, how long have they been ostensibly working oh, on about, hysteria. About, about a year. So they've already had a year. They've done a year and they've got nothing. Well, no, they have got... They've got some songs. Okay, timeline. When they start writing and demoing songs, Mutt is there to help out. So early on, you've got Animal. Um, what was the other one? They've got a few. I think maybe Armageddon, I can't remember. Yeah. Definitely Animal, because they were all excited. They thought this was a breakthrough moment. And if you listen to that demo, it's amazing how close it is to the right. thing that Mutt finished for them. Yeah. Down, down, down. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ow! You know, all the rough stuff was there, and it was Mutt that turned it into something really exceptional. Um, but so they've got, they've got the songs. They've got a lot of the songs. They don't have Pour Some Sugar. They don't have Hysteria. They don't have Love Bites yet. Um, and it just isn't happening. But it, it, it's so expensive to extricate that they just go, fuck it, and they do. Then they start because, working... Because I suppose Pyromania is still selling at this point. Pyro- still selling, yeah. but were, never sold anywhere outside America. Yeah. It was a complete flop. Yeah, but if, you, if you're going to sell somewhere... America is... <laughs> America's no, I, the number one choice. Absolutely, but um, don't forget, albums are selling for what, you know... I don't know, $6 in those days, $7. They try and work with Nigel Green, who was Mutt Lang's right-hand man in the studio. 
and they were saying it got it got so ludicrous. It was at the point where whenever there was a decision to be made about what do we do next on a song, it was literally what would Mutt do? Yeah, and in the end, they because, get Mutt because well, Mutt is off. The reason Mutt's not there is that he's in the middle of this insane golden run where he seems to produce every giant rock album. It starts with Foreigner Four. He produces Back in Black. Highway to Hell, yeah, uh, for those about to rock. Yeah, uh, you know, and then he goes off and does uh, Pyromania. High and Dry, yeah. Pyromania. And then what, so I'm trying to think what he was doing while they were starting Hysteria. Okay, here's what I was told at the time. Mm. And what you're told isn't always the no, actuality. No. But the official, well, it wasn't the official line, but what I was told over a drunken evening was um, Mutt had essentially been in the studio it was kind of like Mutt's in the studio, Def Leppard, ACTC4, Mutt's in the studio. Yeah, yeah. And apparently he just didn't leave the studio for about four years, yeah. during which his personal life goes to hell, his mental health goes to hell. Um, I, when I say goes to hell, what I mean is the man needs a yeah, change. Yeah, you just need a break. You, you need got, a I mean, break. Yeah, recording studios are very weird places. I know, that, again, we talk about them being fetishised, but... As a as a as a music writer, you'd occasionally, well, more than occasionally, get, get go in them, yeah. and it's like walking into a different world. I mean, because they have these huge, heavy doors for one thing, because they're soundproofed. Go figure, you know. So it's it's like it it's like it's vacuum sealed. The door shuts behind you, and that's it. You're in, it, you know, it's sepulchral. You're on planet. It's sepulchral. It's dark. You know, everything is muted, everything is turned down. You're not quite sure whether you're supposed to speak. You're not quite sure. And there's um, no start time, finish no, no. time. It's, it's just, just... The, in, in fact, that method of working again becomes fetishized. It's that, you know, you're not making a good record unless you're in there 24 yeah, 7. Yeah. And you see, I mean, just pull out the example of the Metallica film that we spoke about a while ago. Yeah, when James Hetfield comes back from his own yeah. spelling rehab and goes, look, I can't be in the studio for more than nine till three or whatever it is they say, just a normal working day. This is met with horror, horror. because, you know, my God, you're supposed to be in the studio. And Bob Rock is another kind of Lang style producer who is in there from the first drum beat to the last, you know. Exactly. You're not in there, you're not in there, yeah. pop, you know, canning tomatoes, yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah. You're not building a table. You go, I'll come back, I'll do that other, I'll paint that other leg tomorrow, yeah. you know. No, man, because also it's so, it's creative. So the yeah. idea is if the muse it's, is upon you. you. Yeah, yeah, well, just, let's just have a, you know, cool some food in and then we'll carry on. It's all of that nonsense. So, so you can imagine Langer being completely out of it. Uh, and, and also, let us not forget Langer, right? So this isn't, this isn't, um, who was that guy produced in utero for Nirvana? Oh yeah, that bloke. Um, but um, Steve Albini. Steve Albini. That's it. He he. I don't know what it's like today, but for most of his career, or when I knew about it, was he did not charge royalties. That's right. He yeah. just charged a set fee. I think it was like fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> May not even have been that. No, it's probably it was a... chicken feed for a record yeah. company back then. But man, he made album, 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 album. He he only charged fifty grand an hour. I don't know what it was. Say fifty worth, grand. It's an only hour. worth fifty grand. <laughs> but he'd do fucking thirty of them a year. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, it's pretty easy if you just. <laughs> so now Albini's very intense. It's probably not the best example, but I guess what I'm saying is, is this isn't uh, a, a producer who's gonna okay? You've got from May till June to finish the record. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. And then a holiday. Yeah. No, this is Mark Lang. There is no you've got till June. You've got... 
And one of the things... Because Lang himself becomes, I think, becomes obsessed by what he's doing. He is completely yeah. obsessed. And I think Joe Elliott said... Um, he said, I think the thing with Mutt is he views every track we worked on in his head, we're making a hit single. We're making a hit song. So it's not like, you know, okay, we've got our four singles and we've got our momentous stairway to heaven moment and now we just need another three or four yeah. yada yada songs. No, every single one in Mutt's mind is stairway to heaven, you know, is some monumental undertaking which will be impossible not to be staggered and and fall in love with and and you can absolutely hear that on hysteria i mean you can hear it on highway to hell acdc were known for their fillers some of which would be quite marvelously dreadful i mean iron maiden with power slave loss for words yeah dreadful instrumental would never happen on mutt lang's watch Everyone's got to be a standalone classic. So they, Nigel Green clearly doesn't pan out. They somehow they get Mutt back because it's now been two, three years. Yeah. So life has changed, and not only that, he says to them, "Those songs we wrote originally two years ago, they're not. Yeah, it's two years ago. It's exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Um, and and they're in Holland, aren't they? They go to Holland to make Whistle the album. Lord Studios. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the middle of all this, Rick Allen has an accident and loses his arm. A drummer. Yeah. The drummer. I mean, any of them losing their arm. But, you know, the drummer seems to make it more acute, doesn't yeah. it? Well, because you immediately think that's it. You know, it's over. Well, it him. would be for most yeah. people, wouldn't it? Um, but it wasn't. And um, well, He makes this amazing recovery, really. It's astounding that psychologically he recovers as well as physically. He he told me that while he was in the hospital bed, you know, they tried to reattach the arm and it, it didn't take and so forth. Um, he said even as he was still in the hospital bed, he was using his feet to see if he could learn how to, you know, dung, dung, tsh, yeah, dung, yeah. Dung, tsh, all that kind of stuff and more complicated stuff. And the equipment he uses today is, 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 is light years yeah. ahead of I mean, yeah, if it, you know, it happened today... Yeah, I mean, obviously it's equally tragic, but you would not think, well, that's the end of it. No. Because, no, so because the, te- the technology exists. But then These the, days the te- you could have no fucking yeah, exactly, arms. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, the technology didn't exist back then. It really did. It was invented pretty much for him, wasn't it? And there was a huge deal, particularly with rock bands, that you can't, you know, you've got to be live. Yeah. You can't fake it. Yeah. Oh, can you hear Coco? Coco's here. Coco in the house. Yeah. Hashtag metal pug. Snoring fat get. Um, so he has this contraption which basically triggers tapes. Um, but it means he has to play with both feet and his right arm. Yeah. And he's able to do that. One night on tour, his drum tech, uh, we became quite matey. He said, sit with me during the show and I'll show you what goes on. And it was extraordinary. You know, it, it, here's Rick doing his thing, and then behind him, in a kind of hole behind him, is the guy, and I'm crouched next to him. I tell you what, mate, Rick put in a shift. Yeah. You know, those fucking oh, feet never yeah. stopped. That right arm never stopped. Yeah. Um, and it it was as simple as that. It was Rick triggering beats, um, and then this guy occasionally would have to do a bit of something or other. 
but essentially it was all Rick. And I remember when I um, I interviewed him out in Whistlelord. I think it was the first, pretty sure it was the first interview he'd done since the accident. And um, he 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 just said, "Look, from the word go, I had it in my head. I would I would figure it out." Yeah. And it was only at, uh, at that point, you know, like when you, you think about something, you don't realise actually there's a, a whole field of research you can do. He said he, t- he found out that um, uh, Vietnam veterans that came back from the war, had lost a limb, would play drums. or wow. lo- yeah, yeah. yeah. He said it was that was the basis of him finding out there were these things you could do to compensate for the yeah. lack of a limb. So essentially the left leg became the left arm. And see, here's the benefit of the bond of the band themselves. They, you know, they're not a band who came together late in life. They're not been thrown together by a record company or something like that. Yeah, they're all old friends. They are from school. So, yeah, so there's no question that Rick will be rehabilitated right. if it's remotely possible. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter what else they're doing. He's going to have his place back in the band. And there's that fantastic story. Uh, Rick didn't tell me this. Joe did. He said we knew he was going to be okay when because um, they were in one studio at Whistlelord and in a smaller rehearsal room, studio room, is Rick trying to figure out this kit. He said, and Rick came in one day, you, know, you wouldn't see him for days, you know, and he came in and he said, guys, we got a minute, I want to play you something. And they're like, right, and then, oh, okay, you know, so they go in the other room and he gets behind the kit and he starts playing the intro to When the Levy Breaks by Led wow. Zeppelin. Yeah. Dun, dun, yeah. You know, that incredible yeah. John yeah. Bonham. Yeah. It's not like, hey, look, I can play like, you know, whoever yeah. it is in the suite or whatever. I'm going to play, I'm going to show you how I do John fucking Bonham. And they apparently they burst into tears and it was just a wonderful moment. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah. Because how long did it take him to recover long physically time. from the accident? Well, when I, it was summer 87 when I went out there. I remember it was it was literally the day after my 29th birthday mm. and I was so hung over. I remember ringing Bernadette Coyle, remember Bernadette? Yeah. And begging her, <laughs> can we just put it back a day? Yeah. She's like, no, they're expecting you. You know, I'm like, oh, oh please. <laughs> you see, but it was my birthday yeah. yesterday, so naturally I got yeah. all fucked up. Yeah. You know, don't care, you're getting on the plane. Horrendous. Um, but uh, where was I going with that? What was I going to tell you? you oh, so that was summer of 87. Um, he had the accident, wasn't it New Year's Eve into New Year's 84, 85? Yeah. I think. Or was it 85, 86? No doubt someone will refresh the well, actuality. Yes, yes. Um, but also in the middle of all this, what we didn't understand at the time was that Steve Clark yeah, is also having terrible problems, has gone into rehab a couple of times on the QT... Um, I remember that first visit, me, Steve and Joe ended up back in my room, you know, late at night and we got the brandy out and um, Joe's knocking it back, I'm knocking it back and Steve had this really full glass of brandy and he went, um, he goes, I don't think I want that. And Joe, I remember Joe going, good, good man, chuck it away. Um, So he did. And I remember thinking, that's a waste. What's up? What's his deal? Not in a bad, not in a kind yeah. of. Huh, what's his deal? But thinking, sorry for him. Mm. You know, like, oh, so he can't drink that brandy. Yeah, what's going on there? Yeah, 
What are you, it's two in the morning, can't drink a bottle of bread. Yeah. What are you, yeah. some form yeah. of... Is this a fucking rock band or what? <laughs> Have I come on tour with Bros? <laughs> um, but all that is going on. All that's going on. Um, well, this is but, the thing. I mean, Steve is, you know, I, I don't know, I didn't know him, but strikes me as, you know, quite a damaged person and and would probably, again, would be treated very differently today. Mm. Do you know, it's hard to know because even back in 87, 88, because I ended up going on the road with him a lot different times mm. and um, Steve and I became very close. Yeah, I remember. And even back then, you know, rehab and... It was it was part of the conversation. Yeah, it's yeah. not that they're tr- not trying to help him. It's just, I mean, I think, and I'm sure the re- in rehab they're trying to explore why, you know, he, he's, he's having these. He he told me that one of the one of the reasons he hated rehab was, um, and it, this must be the same for a lot of people that are very successful or whatever or famous. He said there was no one like me. Mm. You know, he said, you know, how can they? You know, I'm trying to say, yeah, I'd come off stage, 20,000 people and want to kill myself and drink. And and they're just looking at him going like, you yeah. know, what's oh, wow. it, what's it like? What's to it like? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember Jason Bonham telling me when he was in rehab, one of his, he's been clean and serene for years, bless him, but it's, it always takes more than one go, you know. Mm. And one of his early jaunts in rehab, he was telling that they, the, the therapists had to come to him and say to him, Jason, listen, you know, between you and me, at the group session tomorrow, yeah. can you just tone down? Because it sounds like you were really enjoying yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, he, and he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, yesterday yeah. you told this story of how you turned up at a casino in Vegas with a quarter ounce of Coke, two bottles of champagne and a hooker on either arm. I yeah. mean... Yeah. People think that's great. Yeah. That doesn't sound like you're suffering yeah. at all. Yeah. I, I say, I don't know if it's hooker, probably yeah. just friends. Um, special friends. Special friends. Um, and he said, he goes, oh, you know, because that was his truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But but it, can you imagine how difficult... Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, you do become inured to rock star excess, which, again, makes someone like Steve Clark kind of hide in plain sight. Because, Absolutely. Because the lifestyle is covering up, actually, what's going on. You know, if if he'd been an accountant, well, people go, why is this guy <laughs> late for work every day and pissed out of his brains? You know, was he in a rock band? They go, oh, well. You I know, remember he had always had a, a litre bottle of vodka backstage. Yeah. And before he went on stage, he would get it and hide it under the table. You know, they have sort of buffet yeah, tables yeah. with long... Yeah, because drapes. I think he's realised it. He's even hiding it from the rest of the band, isn't he? I mean, even, they're at that, that point where the rest of the band are going, no, this is our friend and this is a problem. Yeah, and it, 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 it really wasn't as if, you know, if he, if he hadn't done that, he would have come off stage and it was empty. Yeah. You know? he, yeah. he just needed that whole litre. Yeah. That and cranberry juice was his tipple. Um, but anyway, Def Leppard. You know, so they're trying to make the record with all of this going on. This yeah. extraordinary yeah. backstory yeah. is behind them. So uh, I remember at the time, and and you know, writing about the album still yet to come out. People thinking this is this is got it's going to bomb. This has got to bomb. All of this stuff, all of the bad juju that's following behind. There's no way this is going to be a hit record. There's no, you know, it'd be a miracle if they come out of the studio with anything at all. It, it did seem like they were cursed. Yeah. 
It was almost as if, you know, because Pyromania was such an extraordinary success. Um, it was number two in America. It was only kept from the number one spot by Thriller. Yeah. Um, but it was selling so many copies that if it hadn't been for Thriller, it would have been number one for months in America. It sold like seven million copies at a time when I, I think Bat Out of Hell had sold seven million copies yeah. or, or, or Rumours, Rumours or, or something like Hotel that, yeah. California yeah. or something. But it was very, very um, big deal. Um, yeah, well, so you almost think, well, this is, a, it's an impossible, first of all, pyromania is impossible to follow. Yeah. Oh, they're, yes, so they maybe yeah. they'd made a deal with the it, it, devil exactly, to get yeah, that kind yeah. of success, the, I was the, going to say. They're, they're actually only popular in America. At this point, the UK has a kind of ambiguous relationship oh, yeah. with them. They thought they were flash bastards. Yeah, because they've gone, they've gone and sold out to yeah. America. Yeah, exactly. You know? That was the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, because they're making very American-sounding music by this point. They've got American managers. Their yeah. first proper single in the UK was Hello, America. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's nothing kind of wrong with that, but it's sort of seen as... Over here. You know, yeah, over here, they're kind of lost track of their roots. You know, they're not Saxon, they're not Motorhead, not they're not Maiden. Maiden, they're not always, you know, watching West Ham or whatever it is. And, and it, is it in the middle of this, they all move to Dublin as well? They all go and live in Dublin, or was that later? No, uh, Dublin was post-Pyromania mm. because of the incredible tax benefits. Yeah, yeah. Which, you again, know, isn't going to make you that popular in the UK. You know, I, oh, I, they're tax exiles in Dublin, are they? Yeah, yeah. but I don't think what people realised was the law in Ireland at the time was that basically they paid no tax. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think the deal was... If they could prove or if they could just establish that the songs on Hysteria or whatever the next album was going to be had been written in Dublin, then again, that confers a much better yeah. tax status. Yeah. I'm not a tax expert, clearly. No, so, but, but no, but they, I remember those Ireland, stories going around. Ireland did have that thing at the time where they were giving artists mm. massive tax, because U2 had all of those tax. Apparently they don't do it anymore, but they did. Who Ireland, Ireland yeah, don't do anymore. Yeah, oh, there, so. there goes the house in Ireland. Yeah, I was looking go, at. yeah get rid of that. <laughs> but it seemed it seemed as though they'd done some bargain with the devil. Yeah. On but then you went out there and you heard it in the studio. Hysteria. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what, what, did you, what did Mick Wall think? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I wondered this myself many years later, thinking... Um, what did I think? Yeah, did, did I did I did I actually understand? Did I know? Like I knew with Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> did I know? Did I get that same feeling? I reread the article. I can't. I think it was when I was doing a compilation of my stuff, mm. and I was uh, just intrigued to see. Did I get it or did it? Because the great music does take a few listens yeah. often to understand just how good it is. And I'm pleased to say the whole thing was about what an extraordinary piece of work it was. And I, it triggered a memory. I remember sitting with Phil Collin um, in some bar near the studio with the band and um, saying to him in a drunken sort of rant, you know, people go on about his take... Because don't forget, four years to make a record in those days. Yeah, come on. I mean, this is, this is before even Guns and Roses yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh, yeah. Chinese democracy. Um, I said, all those people that say it's taken them four years, I said, well, hey, why don't they all take four years and see if they come up with a fucking masterpiece like this? 
because they won't, will they? And they used to make jokes. They used to make jokes about when it got too much. I remember Joe saying often, because there were so many times we said to each other, why can't we just be fucking Iron Maiden? Go in and bash, bash, bash. And and off you go. You're done. Yeah. Because, you know, there's... Well, how many albums did Maiden make in that period between, you know... Pyromania, the, the Pyromania coming out and Hysteria being a massive hit. Pyromania Mate. came out in 83. Yeah. And Hysteria came out in 87. But in that time, after Pyromania has been released, you've got Power Slave, yeah. Somewhere in Time, um, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, yeah. a live double album. Yeah, so <laughs> they basically made three studio albums and, and a, a live double album. Double album. Yeah. Yeah. On that year when they didn't yeah. release the studio yeah. album. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time... Um, actually, I, well, yeah, roughly speaking, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, no, I was, I was cognizant. I really was. I think I became much more aware as years went by because I just... It takes a while. The track's like Rocket. Mm. Rocket. Yeah. Da-da. It mm. kind of washed over me to begin with. I could tell it was. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, I mean, they were. It was. A, yeah, because animal. Animal was the first single, wasn't it? Which yes, which first get, single here, which gets away, as they say. First single here, number six, first hit single they ever had in the UK. First time they were ever on top mm. of the pops. Yeah, amazing. Um, in America, they made a a doo doo because Cliff Bernstein, Mench's partner, and considered the oracle uh said why don't we release women remember the track women yeah, I do remember which that. opens the album women yeah oh, na, 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 na. a bit like rocket or yeah. pour some sugar yeah. there, there's a few of those but cliff's reasoning was you know uh you've got this reputation as being a bit lightweight pop dressed as rock whatever Come out with women, and that's going to completely establish your re-establish your Mm. heavy rock credentials. It won't be a massive radio chart hit, but it will a bit like you know when White Snake released "Still of the Night" as the first single, and then you get "Is This Love" and all that other stuff. It was that kind of thinking. Like we put out the big fucking rock one, and it just flopperooned. Uh, so they then rushed out Animal, and that only got to number nine. Women didn't get anywhere in the top 30. Animal gets to number 19. So it's still like, okay, mm. but yeah. it was only the, the the one that absolutely pushed it over in America was Pour Some Sugar On Me. Yeah. And, of course, like all great stories, it was the last song they recorded. And, in fact, they had to battle to get the time to record it. They'd had, they had 11 tracks ready to go. And apparently Joe was sitting around the studio strumming on an acoustic, you know, um, ding a ding a ding a ding a ding a ding. And Muck came back from the loo and went, what's that? And Joe goes, oh, just something I'm fucking around with. He goes, no, no, let's have a listen. And he goes, we've got to put that on the album. And Joe's like, we, yeah. it's four years Mom. later. Yeah. Arms, rehabs, yeah. Yeah. different Jim Steinman, you know, we're not going to be able to do this. He said, no, no, we're going to do it. And that became Pour Some Sugar On Me. Great story of how they did the lyrics. Joe said he was sitting at one end of the studio with a dictaphone and Mutt was sitting at the other end of the studio with a dictaphone and they were playing the track, they didn't have vocals yet. And it was like they were just sort of going, ding a ding and then they would swap dictaphones. Oh. 
and Joe would listen to what Mutt had done and whatever he thought it sounded like. So, for instance, the opening line is, love is like a bomb, go become and get it on. He said, apparently, when he said it to Mutt, Mutt went, I didn't that's say love is yeah. like a bomb. Yeah. That's what it sounded like to me. Yeah. So they kept it. And as he put it, you know, we weren't writing Blowing in the Wind. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We're doing a T-Rex song, you know, kind of just sexy words that don't necessarily mean anything. Um, so here's the thing. So we spent almost all of the podcast on talking, about, talking about one album, which, I mean, it does over, you know, it does loom over their canon in, in an extreme way. What happens next? You know, why did... It's a, probably a stupid question, but why did they never again have an album that even... You know, is there another album, another Def Leppard album people even talk about, apart from say, those two? Well, I would say no. I mean, because Mutt Langer never... Worked with them another. again. Yeah, Grunge were, comes along... Becomes, you know, the, you're all of a sudden you're not going to get a record company going. Well, we'll give you another four years. Typically, it took them another three or four years to make Euphoria, which mm. was the next album. No Mutt, although I understand he would drop by or you know offer advice or yeah. something. But basically, oh, no. Mutt, Mutt, yeah, Mutt, no. Come Mutt. to come over, Mutt. Yeah. So I remember can't, that can't, album. Yes, I can't because I'm making an album with Shania Twain. Who I'm going to marry. Who I'm going to marry. Who's going to be Mrs. Langer number three. Frankly, Joe, she's kind of better looking than you. (laughs) Although if you listen to Shania Twain... I was just going to say, that album is just a Def Leppard album. It's just done very slightly differently, yeah. Uh, 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 In fact, uh, I hear that uh, Joe actually came up with Man, I Feel Like a Woman. (laughs) And I said, Joe, you you can't say that, Joe. Now, I think originally I'm joking, it was Joe. Woman. I'm joking. I feel like a, no. yeah, I feel like a real man. <laughs> <laughs> Which he wrote when he looks at you. Inspired yeah. by a, a late when you night had that, When you had that hangover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but seriously, um, man, it feel, I feel like a woman. Mm. If you listen to that track, that the actual, you know, that is from Hysteria. Yeah. Yeah, you know, even that weird kind of—is it a guitar? Is it a keyboard? He's just—I mean, he's just uh, mutt. Uh, he's clever. He just tweaks it very slightly. But you can hear—you know—the the common thread between all of those things is Mutt Lang. You can hear how much of Mutt is hysteria. And when him and Shania stopped working, that was the end of Shania. Yeah. In Def Leppard's, uh, in to speak up for them. Euphoria had like two tracks that I thought brought you oh, back. It's, it's not that they don't carry on writing good songs and all of that. It's just that that era vanishes, doesn't it? That era. Steve the whole Clark con- dies. Yeah, the whole concept of having a massive hit record that you tour for years and years, that vanishes. Well, by the time Euphoria comes out, it's what, early, early 92, late 91? Yeah. Early 92, I think. And you've already got the Nirvana album. You've got Pearl yeah. Jam. You've yeah. got Soundgarden. Everyone's listening to something different And now. it just sounds completely uh, not of the moment anymore. Mm. So they've gone from Hysteria, which for me was was universes ahead of everybody else, to Euphoria, which suddenly was universes behind everybody else. Rick Savage said um, the record company came to them uh, c- coming up to Euphoria and suggested they get Mike Klink in to produce yeah. it, who produced Guns N' Roses. And they were like, 
fuck are you talking about? I said, well, just make it a bit more like... I don't, th- I don't know if they said like guns and yeah. roses, but, you know, make it, rough it up a bit, you know. And they were like, you're just not getting this, are yeah. you? Because like you said, they were far more like Queen or... Um, hmm. They certainly weren't down and dirty. No, guns no. And roses. But he's the, I mean, and they have to wait. Like all sort of heritage bands do, they have to wait for time to come back round their way. You know, and now, now they're massive again, aren't they? I mean, Taylor they are, Swift on stage with them and all the rest of it. They are bigger now than yeah. ever. I, yeah. I, I saw them in Los Angeles when they were touring with Journey. So this is like October 2018. And um, it, it, it was like going back 30 years, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, yes, we have the technology. All the bands have the technology now. But nevertheless, it made you realise... Because a jukebox show, you know, Journey would say, we're going to do the Dirty Dozen, mm. all their hits. Leopard would have their own kind of version of that. Um, and it was it just sounded fabulous. Sugar, animal, photograph. Yeah. I mean, high and dry... Here's the other thing is, I still get people telling me high and dry is mm. the best album, which was their second album, first with Mutt, but is the one that is probably most kind of ACDC-ish yeah. or... Um, straight ahead rock and roll and it does sound amazing but if that had been any other band they would have carried with that wouldn't they that yeah, would have been yeah yeah. and when people say oh the, the joy of ACDC is that they never they... change I'm like no no that's the bore <laughs> yeah that's the boredom yeah. of ACDC if yeah. you've got Highway to Hell and Back in Black unless you want to get some more Bon era albums you've got the lot John O our era has Back in black, you've got it. You don't need yeah. nothing else is right. even remotely yeah. as yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. But Def Leppard continued. I mean, I interviewed Joe th- before that tour with Journey, and he was saying we still insist on making albums. He said our management, our record company, everybody says to us, "Why are you bothering?" Yeah, it's not just that it's not going to sell. No one sells. No one. Yeah, it's the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not that it's unique to them. People aren't saying, "Well, we don't want a Def Leppard album." They just don't want any album. No. Why? Why would we buy an yeah. album? Um, but he he has this 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 idea that it kind of legitimizes you, but keeps you present, I guess, so that you not are entirely a jukebox group. You are. You still have a, a forward motion. And, I, and that that clearly is more for his and the band's benefit these days than anybody else's because, and I wish it wasn't so, but I, I couldn't name you a Def Leppard track. No. They've done some great albums. I mean, I remember 2002, I can't remember what the album was called now, but I remember we made a big fuss of it in Classic Rock. And I remember saying at the time it was the best thing they'd done since their heyday. But the sad fact is, is I can't even remember what the fucking album was yeah. called. Um... And yet, they're as good live as ever. The only one I really miss is Steve Clark. Yeah, and when Steve died in what year? I think it was like January 91. Yeah, yeah. So again, at that point of change, really. They'd finished the Hysteria tour. And um, I remember I bumped into Steve a few months before he died. I think Queensryche were playing in London the the Dominion or some mm. Astoria or something. Or oh, the Empire. 
Yeah. They should have played the Empire, shouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, of course, Peter Manchincliffe managed Queen's Rice yes, as well did, as yeah. Def Leppard, so Peter's there. And I remember having rather too much to drink. And, of course, I bumped into Peter. Yeah. And he was like, oh, hi, Mick, how's your career going? Yeah, and you were slurring. I'm like, yeah, it's great. I'm not on the telly anymore. Yeah. I didn't say that, but, you know. And it was just horrible. And then next thing I bumped into Steve. Mm. And he looked amazing. He always looked amazing. He had this American girlfriend that kind of made sure he looked the part when he went out. And um, and it was like going back on the tour, those late nights we used to spend gibbering at each other. And um, But out because it wasn't that context, it was just the bar of the Dominion or wherever mm. we were. Um, I think I got a clearer idea of the kind of trouble he was in because um, it wasn't after the gig. It wasn't you're on the road. It was just a normal, yeah. normal thing. And he really wasn't getting it together. And he, and he kept saying to me, do you like fishing? Do you go fishing? Uh, now, I've only ever been once in my life yeah. and I didn't catch a fish. Trawler fishing, you went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm like, yeah, sure, yeah. He yeah, said, yeah, I'll go fishing. Yeah, he goes, you yeah. want to go fishing? He goes, I'm just thinking. So what now? <laughs> yeah, like January. Yeah. He goes, I'm, he goes, I'm thinking just, you know, and I could see in his head there was this this scenario. This that place he's trying to get to. Yeah. That would make everything all right. Mm. He goes, I'm just thinking, you know, sitting on a riverbank with a mate, fishing, couple of beers, that's all, couple of beers. Yeah. And I remember, and, and he'd said it to me before, but that was the first time I realised it was just a fantasy. Can you hear the pub? I can. I do apologise. I just yeah. wanted them to know it's not you making no, it. No, that's right. It was. <laughs> yeah, and um, I don't went a year later, whatever, but I remember um, the flat I was living in at the time, I got a phone call telling me he'd died. And... Um, I just remember, it sounds so melodramatic, but I had to sort of get down on the floor because it felt like the floor was rising to meet me. I was so shocked. Yeah. I remember being on the floor and just sort of steadying myself. And I couldn't get my fucking head around it. I couldn't get my head around it. And, of course, in those days, you can't text. There's no text. Yeah, there's no email. There's no way of reacting to it, yeah. There's no one to reach out to. And the only ones like the band, I thought the last thing they want right now is, oh, it's Mick from Kerrang. Yeah, I thought yeah. I'd ring you and say how upset I am. Mm. You know? So just on my own. And, the, and then even friends or I'd be going, this guy died. And and all they could think of, oh, some rock star died. Some yeah. rock star I've never heard of, don't give a shit about. Are they died? So what? what? It means nothing. What are you, mm. You're fooling yourself. It means nothing, you know. And, but it did. It meant a lot. Um, and whenever I see pictures of him now or clips on telly, particularly of that era, because he dyed his hair blonde. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, on the, you know, like on the backstage passes, you know, your laminate, uh, they're all kinds of different ones for different legs of the tour. And I had one, and it just, it was a picture of me not looking at my best. It just had written on it, party animal, right? <laughs> And um, I remember Ross had one of his, his son when he was a baby, you know, this kind of thing. And um, 
Steve had one and written on it was Jimmy's favourite <laughs> because I'd recently got to know Jimmy Page. Yeah. And he came on the... I don't know if I ever mentioned you. I used to do a, a TV show. Did you? In a the TV 80, show? How <laughs> remarkable. He comes on and we become quite pally for a little while. And, uh, and I'm you playing... And, you and Pagey. Yeah. yeah. And I'm playing him all this stuff. And he goes, you know who I like? He goes, the blonde guy in Def Leppard. I said, Steve Clark, the guitarist. He goes, yeah. He goes, I love it that the, he has the guitar slung, around Slung, his... yeah. He goes, I love him. He's my favourite. So I told Steve this, and suddenly, you know what it's like. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's Jimmy's, Jimmy's favourite. Yeah, because yeah, they're all burning up, but they're not <laughs> Jimmy's favourite. Steve's so going, he didn't say that. He didn't yeah. say I said he did. I mean, he was kind of joking. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't saying, you know, who's the greatest well, half guitarist. The time, yeah, half the time you can't tell which one's Steve doing it, which one's Phil, can you? <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. On Euphoria, Vivian Campbell hadn't joined the band in the mm. studio. He, he joined for the tour. Phil did all the guitar on Euphoria, including Steve's parts. Mm. And it, so he was such a brilliant technician, is such a brilliant technician. He was able to, I mean, obviously Steve's not there, so he has to imagine. But he was able to imagine what Steve would yeah. do. And yeah. So that's what he did. He did both parts. Um, yeah, well, I interviewed Phil Collin not very long ago, actually. For, well, it was when they were inducted into the Hall of Fame. Right, right. The rock and roll. And I interviewed Viv and Phil. And obviously Viv's interesting because he, you know, he, he'd been in Dio, he'd been in White Snake. He Absolutely, was a bit yeah. of a sort of gun for hire. And it probably wasn't expected that he was going to stay in Def Leppard for as long as he has done and form this partnership. With Phil, which has now been going on for longer than Phil yeah. and Steve ever oh, played absolutely. together. So it was interesting hearing what Viv had to say about that. And he said, but look, I'm always playing Steve's parts, you know. I always know that I'm playing Steve's parts when I play those those older songs. But Colin was interesting because he said, I said to him, oh, you've got that reputation as being the real technician. And Steve was supposed to be the sloppier player. And he said, no, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily true. He said, what Steve was, Steve would play unusual things. You know, he'd, he 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 wasn't he wouldn't do the thing that other guitar players would do automatically. But he wasn't sloppy. He said actually he was. You know, some parts he'd be incredibly accurate, and you, you had to be incredibly accurate to do those bits. So I wonder if Page really liked him because Page also had that reputation of playing. You know, different tunings, different. You know, he just would play also something being that, sloppy. Exactly, but he'd also played something that you know a million old blues men have played, but. But when Page played it, he just did one little thing that made it different and it became his. And I think that's sort of what Phil was saying about Steve is he wasn't necessarily sloppy. He would just play unusual things. It, I think the Page thing is a really mm. good point you raised because Jimmy, um, I mean, I asked Richie Blackmore what he thought of Jimmy Page. And I, I've told you this one before. Mm. He said, uh, oh, yeah, a lot, I, either really good colour or a lot of colour. And... I thought that was a good answer because what he was basically saying is, is if you want to talk about who's going to do an amazing solo, yeah. I'm the man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Page has other qualities mm. which aren't about that. Um, but when he's on, when he's on, he brings texture and, as you say, different tunings mm. and ideas. Um, and maybe that was why Jimmy picked up on him because 
I don't know how, about different tunings with Steve necessarily. No, but I don't think... Certainly do he could be amazing yeah. one night and off the pace the next, you know, because he was real. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Steve was rock and roll. I think if it had been down to Steve, they would never have spent four years waiting for Mutt Lang to come up with some genius way of doing their songs. They'd have just fucking done them and gone out and played. Yeah. Um, and there's a virtue to that. But... You know, Mutt Langer, Def Leppard. It's just, you know, you can't you can't stop genius in that way just because one guy is not grooving on it. You know. Yeah. So I would say I would say I love Def Leppard. I love High and Dry. I love Pyromania. I think Hysteria is one of the greatest rock albums ever made by anybody. I don't think it's been beaten to this day. But you know, the power of Mutt Lang, the tragedy of Steve Clark. Um, they've come up with some wonderful stuff since, but... Yeah, it's time and place, isn't it? Everyone, you know, if you have a long, even if you have a long career, it's even Sinatra or someone, or Elvis, you know, it's time and place. You remember specific bits of it. There are huge long stretches where they're doing stuff that you forget all about. That's just the nature of it, really. I take one one last story before we finish because I I I um I'm I had a run in with Def Leppard before they were famous. Mm. That would be PR. why because they weren't famous. You weren't, <laughs> you we weren't were interested in the non-famous. It was when I was in a PR company, heavy publicity, heavy publicity, and we did Sabbath yeah. and Wild Horses and The Damned and Journey and all kinds of people. And we did a little bit of work with Thin Lizzy now and again. And anyway, long story short, they had two homespun managers and one came to see us. I think they were pretty well off. One of them had a double-barreled name, you know. Mm. And um, he came in our office and he played us what became um, that EP on Bludgeon Refund. Oh, yeah, yeah. With yeah. Get Your Rocks Off yeah, on it. Yeah, And Wasted and all these songs. And me and Joe, my partner, are going good this is really good and he said well come and watch them play and they were opening the opening act at the Hammersmith Odeon for I can't remember I want to say ACDC but it's probably Sammy yeah. Hagar or something yeah anyway we went not yeah you know, I'm at gigs every fucking night at this point in my life and I thought well they'll be they'll be it'll be interesting you know John they were fucking amazing this is Pete Willis mm. Rick with two arms, Steve with brown poodle hair. I couldn't believe it. They were so young, so colourful, and they were shooting off in all directions. It was like, it was kind of like, did I miss five years mm. and this group are now the best band in the world? Or am I actually seeing a group no one's heard of with a tiny little indie EP out? And it was the latter. And so we just went, we've got to fucking do this band. And we just went backstage and said, yes. And they were thrilled because they were telling us what, uh, I think Pete Willis was telling us what big Thin Lizzy fans, right. him and Steve were, because, you know, the two guitars. Mm. And, uh, and the manager goes, yeah, they even have the liquid handcuffs. Do you know what liquid handcuffs were? You know, you get a six-pack of beer. And you have the little... And the plastic, yeah. and you'd pull... To, like, you, we've got to say, yeah. you have one, I have one, yeah. and one of us holds the yeah. plastic handcuffs. The ring, yeah. They even have the plastic handcuffs. Wow. 
Yeah. So we thought, oh, well, you know. And so we said to the guy, we definitely, us, them, yeah. us, it's going to be amazing. And then we heard nothing for weeks. And, uh, and we're going, what the fuck's going on with these people? So finally we get hold of the guy on the phone and he goes, um, he goes, I'm never so sorry, but since we saw you, uh, the band have taken on a new manager. We went, we're going, oh, fuck. We went, who? Mm. He goes, does the name Peter Mensch mean anything <laughs> to you? And, uh, and heavy publicity had had the Lieb, Lieber and Krebs account. Um, so uh, I didn't know who Peter was, but Joe did. And I just remember his face falling. Yeah. Going, oh, that's, that's the fucking it. end yeah, of us. <laughs> next time you see him, Pete's, next time you see Peter Mensch, he's going to say, and how's your career going? <laughs> You can I'm drunk and I haven't got a TV show anymore. He, he, he didn't, he didn't yeah. like it that me and Steve were so close. And, and yeah. in fairness to him, because he knew we Bad were going to get drunk and fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I remember on the final night of the Hysteria tour in America, um, the band have come off, they're in the dressing room, all waiting to go in. And Peter, we're walking back, and Peter walks by me, and he goes, hiya Mick, and he slapped me on the back. So hard, John, mm. he knocked me over. It was Good. like I'd been punched. Yeah. But it was like, hi, man. Yeah. You know, like passive. Yeah. Passive aggressive. Yeah, kind of aggressive aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking, wow, he just he didn't, really he hates just didn't me. bother with the passive. He didn't. Nah, yeah. yeah. Peter non passive. Yeah. 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 Kicked your ass. And do you know what? I, I don't right blame so. him. Yeah. Right fucking so. blame yeah. I, I didn't know the it's extent proper, of the it's proper problem. management. Right, John, anything to add before we... No. <laughs> okay. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review, share it with a friend, or plain old subscribe wherever you listen to it. To Getcha some conversation online, follow us on Twitter at GetchaPod. Until next time. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.